few weeks I've been talking about my convictions. I have a conviction that the Bible is the inspired, irrefutable, immutable Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And for all those people that have always tried to get out of the Word of God, being the Word of God, and say, well, only the parts in red, you know, the parts where Jesus spoke are real. I'm here to tell you that He didn't even write those. Someone else wrote them about what He said. So if you're going to throw out some of the Bible, throw it all out. But I have a conviction that the Bible changes lives, is uh, able to be proven, as I did on that Sunday weeks ago. Then I spoke about, I have a conviction about the church. It wasn't the beginning. Uh, it didn't start with 12 lonely men having support group meetings because their friend had left. It was started by God in eternity, and it was revealed when Jesus died and rose again. Last week I spoke about, I have a conviction about the battle, that you have to run to the battle, that your family, your future, your finances are all determined by whether you run to the battle or run away from the battle. God wants us to run to the battle. And today I wanna talk to you about another conviction that I really believe you wanna hear today and you need to hear and we all need to hear. I have a conviction that Jesus is greater than any problem or any circumstance or any issue you're facing. He's bigger than your abuse. He's bigger than your pain. He's bigger than your financial challenge. He's bigger than your marriage problems. He's bigger and more powerful than your children's problems. He's bigger than those bills. He's stronger and more capable to care for you than anything in the entire world. He is bigger. He is better. He is almighty God. He is all sufficient. He is all conquering. He is all capable. And that's why Jesus, God says He gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. That means bills must bow. That means, that means those issues that are negative must bow. And I believe as we look at the world today, who thinks the world's in an absolute mess? Think about what the bloodshed and the horror of what's happening in Israel. Think about the horror. It's easy to forget because you know, the news cycle moves on. The horror that's happening in the Ukraine. Think about all the hot spots, the, the, the biggest famine uh, for 50 years happening right now in parts of the world. There we go. Uh, uh. Uh, uh, I'll turn this one off. Jesus. Let me say it again. Jesus. You know, you think about it, the stock market, they're saying it's the, uh, the worst bond market in history right now, what's happening in financial world. We're talking about inflation supposedly coming down, but every one of us know everything seems to be going up. Food continues to go up. Things continue to be a challenge. There's all kinds of challenges around us. We are, we are in a world that is a mess, a world that's divided, a world that has challenges. And by the way, if it might cuts out, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to yell over it because I know today I'm preaching about Jesus, anything could go wrong. 
I'm looking up at the sky in case something falls down, but Jesus will protect me. It's all right. All right. So I'm going to take you over here if I can. We've ne- have we ever had this problem? Never. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. There we go. It's a good sign. I'm just going to keep going. If my voice sounds a bit funny, I'll just have a drink. All right. So I want to talk to you about what happens in the Bible. Today we're going to do a study, kind of a helicopter viewpoint of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're not quite sure who wrote it. Many people think the Apostle Paul wrote it. But we know it was inspired by God. and It was written around 65 AD. Now, what you need to know about 65 AD and around that time is that the church had been going for 30 years, but now there was persecution. There was all kinds of issues going on. This was five years before AD 70 where uh, the Romans came and ransacked all of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. But it's been anything but a city of peace over these thousands of years. That's why there's a fight in that place. It's not any accident that it always seems to be in that place because it's the center of where the Bible and spiritual things emanate from. And in 65 AD, they were five years away from being ransacked. So I don't know uh, whether it was the tension that builds towards this violent occupation. This vi- they were already occupied by the Romans, but about to get a, a, a smashing. They were besieged in April of that year of AD 70 and lasted for seven months till the Romans broke in and smashed down everything and, and, and did so much carnage and so many bad things. But whoever was writing to the book, uh, to, the, to the Hebrews at that time was inspired by the Holy Spirit to start to talk to some people. Already people had lost things. Already there was turmoil in the air. Maybe economics were just down the toilet. Maybe inflation was rampant. Maybe issues were so obvious in the world even at that time that as they got towards this violent, this massacre, this absolute uh, horrendous event that would take place in AD 70, He's trying to talk to people that are in the midst of a crisis. Here's what I know about crisis. Crisis reveals what's really inside of you. Everybody can fake it till they make it. But when you're in the crisis, what comes out of you is what's really in you under pressure. That's why I always observe how I respond under pressure because I see the parts of me that need changing. When I'm under pressure, I see how far I've come. I see what I need to do differently in the future. And so the writer of the Hebrews, if you understand the book of Hebrews, you can just dive into it and grab a verse here and grab a verse there. But I want to give you an overview of every chapter. Because in the book of Hebrews, it's a book that talks to them and that group of people who are thinking it's too much. The conflict's too big. Where do I look? Where do I turn? Where do I go to? I thought following Jesus would be a good thing, but look at my life. I've lost some possessions. I've lost some things. And they're wondering about going back to what's familiar, what's old, what's comfortable. Have you noticed when you're in crisis, you yearn for those uncomplicated days when it was peaceful, when mum and dad looked after it or someone else did. You find yourself wanting to do what Peter did, go back fishing, 
Go back to the old ways. Go back to the old mindsets. Go back to the old comforts. Go back to the old addictions. It's normal. It's natural. When we're upset, when our equilibrium has been when our equilibrium has been really uh, compromised for us to think about what do we do next? How do we find the true plumb line in the middle of this crisis? Well, I'm here to tell you today that what was written to the Hebrews is valid today for your life. And so what he does is in chapter 1, he starts to outline, the writer starts to tell us, and I'll read a verse that says this, on many past occasions and in many different ways, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who appointed heir of all things and through Him whom He made the universe. And chapter 1 of Hebrews was about that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Remember, they have the Old Testament. They know the prophets of Zechariah and Ezekiel and Haggai and Joel. They know all the prophets. And right here in the midst of there, looking for comfort and certainty from their childhood, they start to turn towards Judaism, towards old thinking, old religious pathways. And he says to them, I want you to know, chapter 1, in the old days I spoke by my prophets, but today in the last days I speak by my son Jesus. Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Then he moves into chapter 1 and 2 and he says, Jesus is not only greater than all the prophets, he is greater than the angels, all the angelic beings, all the cherubims and the seraphims. He says, Jesus is greater. In verse 6, he says, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And what is he trying to tell these people? You may think angels are powerful. You may think the mystical is great. I know there are people that, you know, kind of make up their own religion. A bit of tarot cards here, a bit of Ouija boards there, a bit of uh, spiritualism there, a bit of this and that there. And he's here to tell you all that stuff is rubbish. All that stuff is inferior. He's saying in these days he's superior to even angelic and supernatural beings. His name is Jesus. told this story before, but it's worth telling again. One of my friends was the uh, deputy education minister for the whole of Canada. He had six degrees. He was the most learned man you could find. He'd been the ed- head of education for the country of Wales. He was someone that was so intelligent, so smart by the world standards. And one day as I'm at a shallow recital with Ben, I get a text message from him asking if I could come and see him. He'd moved back to Australia And I discovered in that moment that he had pancreatic cancer. You see, all the degrees in the world make no difference when your eternity stares you in the face. And you may say over all those times, I don't believe, I don't believe. When they were at my house one day back when I was working in the bank and in finance and my wife was working as a nurse, they came for dinner. And I said to Jane in the morning, I feel like I should pray for them to have a child. I knew nothing about them, and I knew that he was anti the gospel. They came to our house, and we're sitting around dinner, and we prayed, you know, kind of said grace, and we got into prayer and talked about politics and everything else besides spiritual things. And I said to him at the end, I said, listen, I can't get this out of my heart, but I think I meant to pray for your wife. Her name was Karen. I need to pray for Karen to have a baby. That's a bold thing to say to people you hardly know. 
I didn't know if they were trying, I didn't know anything. He said, well, nobody knows this, but she's actually pregnant, but she's in the middle of losing the baby tonight. She's been bleeding all day. said, right now, we're going to stop. And I remember putting my hand on her shoulder. Her eyes are like this. She grew up in a Catholic school. She was watching for the cane or something. She didn't have her eyes shut. There was no reverence. I'm just watching the man who's got his hand on my shoulder. And I began to pray. And in Jesus' name, I ask you, Lord Jesus, to heal Karen, to give them his child. The next day, they go home, of course, that night. The next day, get a phone call. She talks to Jane, and she says, tell Ashley he can stop praying. The, the bleeding stopped. And Jane says, when did it stop? She said, doesn't matter, I'm not going to tell you. Just tell Ashley the baby's okay. Today, they have three children, all grown up all doing great in life because the name of Jesus is higher than every other name. When you're sick, when you can't have a child, who is the person you call? It's not the Ghostbusters. Even though in October we need them, it's this. It's Jesus. He's better than the angels. In chapter 3, he shows them that Jesus is greater than Moses. In Hebrews 3, it says, for the Jesus has been counted worthy of greater glory than Moses. In case you guys are wondering, who's important in this world? Is it this person or that person? In case you thought it was Moses who delivered you from slavery after 430 years, I'm here to tell you, he was a servant in the house. But Jesus, he's a son in the house, and he's been counted worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be spoken later. But Christ, Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. How could you find anyone better than Moses? He'd liberated millions of people. He'd come in and brought 10 plagues to Egypt. The firstborn son had been killed. Frogs and lice and stones from heaven and blood in the river Nile and frogs across the palace. All those things by this great man, miracles that had never been seen before or since that time till this time. And he says, you think Moses is good? Jesus is greater. Whoever it is in your life that brings stability to you, Jesus says, God says, Jesus is greater. Then in Hebrews 4, he shows them that Jesus is greater than Joshua. Can you see the progression? He's better than your prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Moses took you out and Joshua took you in. And let's read what it says. It says this, For if Joshua had given the people rest, God would not have spoken about later about another day. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess what are you professing in these dark moments, in these dark days? Are you professing He is the Lord? Jesus is everything. And for all of you that aren't used to a pastor shouting, when I talk about Jesus, I get passionate. I become Brazilian in a moment. I become Hispanic in a moment. I just have that fire. That fugo goes through my body. And I've got to shout the name of Jesus. Even if I whispered it, 
it would ripple through this place like an earthquake. In chapter 4 and 5, he says to them that Jesus is greater than their great high priest, Aaron. It says, every high priest is appointed from among men to represent them in matters relating to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So also Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but he was called by the one who said to him, today you are my son, today I become your father. He's not a high priest. He's much higher than that. He is the son of the living God, not just representative for man on earth. He is God himself. He is Jesus. In chapter 5, he, in chapter 6, he's greater than Abraham, the father of faith. Who could be greater than the father of the Israeli nation? Who could be greater than Abraham? And the writer confidently expresses, Jesus is greater. Chapter 7, he's greater than the mysterious Melchizedek, the legendary and mythical high priest who came and gave communion to Abraham after winning that battle. He was an epiphany. He was like a Christophany in the Old Testament, an appearance of Christ. He says he's greater than what you've seen and heard about, about Melchizedek. In chapter 8, Jesus is talked about as being the bringer of the new covenant, no longer under law, no longer under shame, no longer under what happened yesterday makes a difference to tomorrow. The God who comes, who redeems, He's Jesus who died so your past could be cleansed and your future could be clean and your future could be enticing and powerful and draw you like a magnetic force towards what is peaceful and powerful and joyful. But only if Jesus is Lord of your life. In chapter 9, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who comes to take away all of the problems of your generational troubles. For so many of us, we live with, with uh, the salvation of types, but God wants to move you from salvation to sanctification, from justification. <coughs> from justification to sanctification. Changed. Every day into the glory of Jesus as we behold Him. You will not be changed if you don't behold Him. You will change as you behold Him, as you make Him the center. Forget all about the politics. Forget about all the pain. Forget about all those things. And when I say forget, I'm not even being, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm not even being small about it. I mean that Jesus is bigger than all of those things. I want to ask you today, what kind of God do you serve? Is he a small God? Little G-O-D? Or is he big G-O-D? Is he the God that opened the Red Sea? Is he the God that does miracles today? Is he the God of ancestors and theology and words on paper? Or is he the living God, the living Jesus today? We need to move on because we're going to have a time of worship at the end where we're going to worship Jesus. And some of us in this room have to make again that decision to not put Jesus off to the side as one of the add-ons, but to make him the center of your life. If Jesus is not first, and you know I don't talk like this often, but you know what? If Jesus is not first, he will not occupy second. And you want to know why there's a gap in your life? Because the gap 
won't be filled by a second-place Jesus or a third-place Jesus. He opts out of the system when you put him in second and third and fourth place. You won't feel the presence of God like you should. You won't feel the power of God like he wants you to. You won't feel the provision of God like you're supposed to unless he's first. He said, I'm a jealous God. I will not have anyone else. Sounds like my wife. She's a jealous wife. She says, listen, you're my husband and I'm your wife. If I ever saw you with someone else, I'll kill you. It's not even a threat. It's a promise. That's just my wife. We're talking about Almighty God. She doesn't want me talking to women. And God doesn't want me talking to other things that I put in place of Him. Woo, we're going old school today. Chapter 9, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 10, he's the one who helps us to live with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 10, he urges us not to throw away our confidence. And you may be going through a season of your life where confidence is hard to find, where you're finding yourself low in confidence, where you're looking at what's happening in Israel, looking at what's happening in Ukraine, look what's happening in your bank account, look what's happening in your business, and your confidence is low. I'm going to tell you the only way to get it back up to where it would be is to look higher, to come, you know, he can't get any higher, so maybe you've got to come a little bit lower. Maybe the reason you can't see him is that he's lower than he should be in your life. But if you'll make him higher, maybe you'll be able to see him again. If he somehow he becomes put on a high, he's the God of all things. He's Christ on high. And if you'll see him that way, you'll start to feel from him what you need. Oh, my goodness. You feel fire in my bones today. Chapter 10, it says, so do not throw away your confidence. not even a request. I just told you he's better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Joshua, better than Moses, better than Abraham. I've told you he's better than Aaron, better than Melchizedek. How many more better than you need to get a grip? He says, now do not throw away your confidence. It holds a great reward. I'm going to tell you right now, your confidence in Jesus has a great reward. You need to persevere so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Guess what? The promise of God only comes to those who do the will of God. And to the will of God, you need to persevere. I wish it was a straight line. I wish it was easy. I want to be like the guy that helps the caterpillar get out of the cocoon. I want to break that caterpillar cocoon open. But what I would have is something ugly and can't fly and doesn't look beautiful. God's not going into your situation to, uh, to, to make your life so easy that you look ugly and you've got nothing to say. He's turning you and I into butterflies so that we can fly, so that we can soar, so that we can be beautiful. And we need to understand that so we don't throw away our confidence. It's not like, it's not talking about your confidence, my confidence. Who cares about my confidence? It's my confidence in Jesus. Do not throw away your confidence in Jesus. If he's not first, of course you're not going to get answered prayer. And in chapter 11, he is greater than all the great men and women. So what happens in chapter 11 is the writer starts to put together a list of all the heroes of faith, starting with Abel going to Noah, going all the way through to Gideon, going all the way through the Bible to, to 
Deborah and all these other great heroes of faith. And he says, hey, I want you to know, as great as these people are, Jesus is greater. Chapter 11 is Jesus is greater than all your heroes of faith. And then in chapter 12, we are being watched by the great cloud of witnesses. And we're urged to run the race by focusing on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Listen to what Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, that stops us keeping our faith and our perseverance. And let us run with endurance the race God set out for you. God did not give you a sprint. God gave you a marathon. Why did you expect it to be over after 200 yards? And it's a 40-mile marathon, everybody. And he says this, let us run with endurance the race set before us. I love you guys so much. I am preaching to where God is taking you. And I want to tell you, if we'll make Jesus number one in our lives, it's going to change everything. I have a conviction that Jesus is better. If he was in Alpharetta today, he would say this, Jesus is superior than your financial system and your savings. He's superior to your job. He's superior and better than your money. He's more important than your skin color. He's superior to your race. He's superior to the icons you hold up and hold as dear. He's superior to even who you are, this pink-skinned Australian. He is superior to my pink skin. That may not get a lot of applause, but it's true. And when we put our identity on something else other than Jesus, he's not first anymore. He's more, he's better than, I was going to say more better, and then I was about to say education, so that didn't work. Jesus is superior to your education. He's superior to your money, to your family, to your rights, to your feelings and grievances. He's superior. He's better. And the writer says if you want to see him, you have to do two things. And then we're going to go into a time of worship. The band can come on up. I'm ready to go. It's time to worship Jesus. Enough talking from me. I just want to point. I just want to be a signpost today. Point you to the one who has the world in his hands. The one who has your world in the palm of his hands. Who looks at you like Tommy says and says, I love you. When you get that revelation that Tommy got, that God cares about you personally, it will change the way you behave. Instead of getting jealous about other people, instead of getting envious about other people, instead of being a gossip, what will happen in our lives is we start to see Jesus. And this is what happened to me on Friday. The reason I'm talking like this is this. While I was praying on Friday afternoon, and I was having an amazing prayer time, Holy Spirit, I'm saying, Holy Spirit, what am I meant to preach? You saw the text message come out, but I didn't feel right about that. But you know, the administrators want text messages, so we've got to keep in line. I didn't feel right, and I felt the Holy Spirit clearly say, find that scripture that talks about seeing Jesus, seeing the Lord. I didn't know where it was, so I used AI to help me. I didn't even know what the rest of the verse was, but this is what it says. Pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness. This is Hebrews 12 now, right? Running the race. Without which no one will see the Lord. 
First word, pursue. It's an aggressive statement. Chase down peace at all costs. Pursue peace with your friends. Pursue peace with your Facebook colleagues. No, it doesn't say that. Pursue peace with the people you like. No, it doesn't say that either. Jesus said it this way. You can love people that love you. That's easy. The world do that. I say, do you love your enemies? 1 Peter 4 says this, above all else, love each other deeply. That word deeply is the word that means to stretch. It's like taking fabric that's not covering a bowl and it was, it's, not, it's showing weaknesses and it's showing what's in there and you're trying to cover it. And the word uh, to love each other deeply means to stretch until you cover the spot that's open and can be seen. And he says here, pursue peace with everyone. And the one that we all think is religious, but it's not. Pursue peace as well as pursue holiness. What is holiness? Holiness just means to be set apart. Holiness means it can't be used for something else. When I got married to Jane, it wasn't like, I mean, I was fighting off for girls. That's, that's no doubt about that. So it was a big day. Holiness was a big deal for me. Why? Because I loved them all. I was like the bachelor. I loved them all. Pastor Jane and I have been watching The Golden Bachelor. Don't tell anyone. It's hilarious. And on that day, when I had to fight back the hordes, you know it's not true now. I was stood at the front, in front of a minister that did our wedding vows. And what was I do? I was being holy. I was being asked to be holy. That word holy in the Greek means set apart. They were saying, will you be set apart to your wife? till death do you part. Will you be set apart? Now, I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about your past. It's not a message about what happened in the past. This is about a message happening for the future. God's forgiven your past. We move on. But I want to tell you something. On that day, I pledged my holiness to Jane. I pledged that I would be set apart to her only didn't mean I didn't interact with other ladies. Didn't talk to them at church or wherever. At the shops, oh, I can't talk to them. No, that's, that's legalism. Couldn't talk to the lady at Walmart, oh, because I'm married. That's legalism. That's how legalism takes you down that track. Holiness is not about what you're against. It's what you're for. Holiness means to be set apart towards God, not away from evil. See, when you drive a Tesla, let me just tell you how it is. When you drive a Tesla, I do not drive past, I don't, I don't drive past any gas-powered vehicles. Even if it's a Porsche. Even if it's, I can't even think, I've just lost memory of all those cars. I don't drive past and go, oh, flip, I wish I was driving that car. I'm like sucked in, you've got to drive a Porsche. I get to drive this. It's a true story, it's how I feel. 
So I've set apart to my Tesla. I'm not trying to deny all the offers from gas guzzlers, from polluters. <laughs> Only joking. But I love my car. I love my wife. I'm not trying to, oh, well, I'm going to stay away from those women. Easy. Why? Because I'm holy. I'm set apart for her. And the writer of the Hebrews, as he begins to wrap up the book, talks to us about how we should live as Christians. We haven't got time to go into all that today, but he says this, there's two things. If you want to see Jesus, put up your hand if you want to see Jesus. I'm not talking about in heaven. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about feeling His presence. And these are the two things I'm going to ask you to do right now. In your mind, say, I'm going to pursue peace with all my heart. In fact, I want us to pray right now. I just feel to do this right now. Everyone close their eyes. Everyone repeat this after me if you're serious. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. The name that's above every name. The name that's above every pain. Every past. Every issue. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me for not pursuing peace like I should. What the world needs now is peace. And I want to do my part by pursuing peace today because I want to see the Lord. But also I ask you to forgive me for putting you in second or third place. I put you back to your rightful place today. I am set apart to you in Jesus' name. Amen.